Well, I brought with me this morning one of the most interesting, one of the most frustrating, one of the most mind-boggling things that exists in our universe today. Want to see it? No, it's not a little sand timer. It's time. Time. You know what's interesting about time is the absolute unceasing nature of it. Have you ever noticed that? Like when things are going really good and you want time to slow down? Doesn't happen. And when, when things are going really, really bad and it's like, man, I wish time would just speed up, guess what? Doesn't happen. It's just monotonous and consistent, mind-numbingly persistent. And here's the thing about time. Billy Graham said this about time. He said there's, there's 1,440 minutes in a day. There's 168 hours in a week. Rich people can't buy more hours. Scientists can't invent more time. We have great technology to save time, but we have less time than ever. Adlai Stevenson said, it's not the days of your life, but it's the life in your days that count. You can't carry over time from today to tomorrow. Once the minutes from today are gone, they're gone never to return. Now, why would I begin with such a sobering, realistic look at time? Why would I do that? Especially in a, in a series where today we're going to be looking at the, the, the idea of work and finances. Well, here's the reality. If, uh, if you work a 40-hour week and you work 50 weeks in a year, now I know that that's very generous because many of you work more than 40 hours a week and many of you work more than 50 hours a year, but if you just worked 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, and you worked for 50 years of your life, you will have spent over 100,000 hours at work. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to spend 100,000 hours doing anything, I want to make sure that it's on purpose. And I want to make sure that when I get to the end of my life, I'm not going to have regrets about how I spent that time. 100,000 hours, that's a lot of time, isn't it? To spend doing anything. But we spend it at work. And I don't know about you, but uh, when, when I think about, especially our culture today, I think right now, more than ever, we need to talk about the area of work and of finances. And I think it's such an important topic and such an often overlooked topic, but we, it's essential that we talk about it and that we talk about it right now. Let me just give you a few statistics. As of March 2012... 39% of Americans carried credit card debt from month to month. 39%. As of 2012, uh, 41% of first-time marriages end in divorce. In America, there's one divorce every 13 seconds. That's 6,646 uh, 6, divorces per day, 46,500 some per week. The Barna Research Group measured divorce statistics by religion, and they found that 29% of those who identified themselves as Baptists, 29% of those who identified themselves as Baptists are divorced. 
which is the highest of any U.S. religious group. Do you want to know what the lowest U.S. religious group when it comes to divorce was? Atheists and agnostics. And I don't know about you, but that's a problem. Why would I say these, these grim statistics about divorce and about credit card debt and so on? Because when you look at any list of reasons that couples give for, um, for getting a divorce, reasons that couples give for conflict within a marriage, reasons that couples fight, on the top ten of any one of those lists is money. Right? I mean, you know this to be true from your own experience, the things that you fight about as, as a couple, the disagreements that you have. But what's also interesting is that among the top five or top ten things on any one of those lists is also quality time spent at home. So friends, what I'm saying is this. Make no doubt about it. In our culture today, we are failing in the area of work and finances, particularly when it comes to our priorities, when it comes to our priorities. A few weeks ago, we looked at the, the book of Ecclesiastes, and I invite you to turn there. I think Ecclesiastes is such an excellent book when we talk about the aim of our life. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by a man named Solomon, who was the wealthiest man on the, on the earth, and he set out to do a grand experiment, uh, trying to find the meaning of life. And basically his experiment went like this. I'm going to try everything under the sun, and I'm going to make some observations about it in all of my wisdom. Okay? In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17, Solomon is talking specifically about work, of toil, the things that he's working hard at. And listen to what he says. He says, so I hated life. Remember, he's doing this experiment, so he's working as hard as he can to try and achieve everything that he can through work. And here's what he said about it. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows, who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over the, all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all that he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his, his days, his work, his pain and grief? Even at night, his mind doesn't rest. This, too, is meaningless. Do you see this? Do you see how maybe this is even your story? You know, I feel like everything that I'm doing is just like spitting in the wind. What am I really working for? And when I get to the end of my life, is anything that I've done going to have lasting value or is it just going to be given away to someone who hasn't worked a day for it? And Solomon even says, you know, I stay up at night and I think about it. My mind can't even shut off. Is, is that you as well? You can't even, can't even sleep well at night because your work consumes you. And that's a problem. And the Bible says that if, you, if your view of success, if that's what you're shooting for, it's going to be meaningless. 
If work is all that you have to live for, your life, you're going to get to the end of life with regrets, having found that everything that you worked so hard for, those 100,000 hours that you spent at work, are going to be meaningless. So that's the bad news. I mean, it's, it, it's bad news for our current state of affairs in America when it comes to, to marriages, when it comes to finance, when it comes to people's um, aimless living in the, in the area of work and finances. But it's also something that the Bible says is, it, it, it agrees. If, if this is all you're living for, then it is meaningless. But what I have to say today is that there is good news, and it doesn't have to be that way. And God has a plan for how you spend your life at work. God has a plan for how you spend your life in terms of finances, in terms of purpose. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. Now, uh, this is a huge topic to cover, in the, especially in the time that we have this morning. But I, I want to give you some thoughts on this. The first one is this. Work and money are God-given gifts for His glory and for our good. Work and money are God-given gifts for His glory and for our good. I invite you to turn to a scripture. It's in Genesis chapter 2 at the very beginning. This isn't going to be on the screen, so I invite you to take one of those Bibles from underneath the chair in front of you. It's Genesis chapter 2, which is on page 2 of the handout Bibles. And I want you to, to look with me at the very beginning of how God designed us and shaped us as people. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, I love that, and we just have to stop there for just a moment because the picture here is just incredible, that God forms the man from the dust of the earth. How does the Bible say that God created the heavens and the earth and all of the animals and, and everything that, that, that inhabits the world? How did, how did God do that? He spoke it. But when he talks about how he created man, it's much different. God reaches down and he, he picks up some dirt and he forms the man. He forms the man and he breathes the breath of life into him and he becomes a living being. Now that shows me purpose. That shows me value. That shows me that, that, that God really does care about this man that he is creating. Enough that he's willing to get his hands dirty, if you will. And so God creates Adam. Now, you have to remember that there's no sin in the world yet. And so we read on about what Adam is to be about. Look at uh, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put, a man, he put the man that he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the next few verses describe the rivers that run through the, the garden. In verse 15 it says, The Lord... God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now some of you are like, no, whoa, 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 wait. I thought this was like heaven on earth, like the perfect, the, the pinnacle of God's creation. It is. And what was Adam to be about? What, what did God create him to do? To work. To work the garden. Now this is a foreign concept Especially to those of you that are like, I, I hate my job. 
I hate getting up and going to my job. I just don't find any joy in it. You know, and there seems to be a disconnect in our mind between this idea that really we're created to work. That's what God creates us to do. I don't know about you, but uh, when I watch my kids play, even from the very earliest ages, their play actually involves them working. I mean, if you give them blocks, what do they do with the blocks? They build something with them. If you give them crayons, they color with them. If you give them a tea set, what are they going to do? They're going to go around and they're going to serve all the people that they can and give you tea and pretend like it's a store. And I don't know about you, but our, our, our kids destroy the house sometimes, setting up store. Do your kids do that? And store is, you know, we're going to pretend that, that we're working. And if they're playing outside, they're <clears throat> raking leaves, planting flowers. Or if they're on their bike, they're riding around. They're pretending like they're on their horse and they're gathering the cattle. They're working. But for them... What is it? It's play. And so I think if we look really closely, we can see that really God did create work and it was for a purpose. <clears throat> it was part of his plan for us. But if you fast forward the story and you, and you turn just a, just a page over into Genesis chapter 3, you see that sin enters the world and Adam and Eve disobey God and there's there's something interesting that happens as a consequence to Adam and Eve's disobedience. If you look at chapter 3, starting in verse 17, <clears throat> God says to Adam, I'm going to need a drink, please. <clears throat> God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field, but the, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so, what does this mean? It means that this amazing, euphoric, perfect environment that God created and this incredible thing that God gives to Adam, this thing called work, it's now tainted. It's not perfect anymore. And there's a word that enters in verse uh, 17, and that's toil. His work would now become toil. So what am I saying? Well, work is no longer a heaven and earth kind of experience for us today. It involves toil. Somebody say, well, yeah, I knew that. I know that. I know my work is toil. But we see that Adam's work was tainted, but it wasn't ruined. And we get glimpses of it today where, where it's like, yes, this is what I was created to do. Work is a good thing. And the Bible, the Bible clearly tells us this. In fact, if we go back to the passage where we were just out in Ecclesiastes, Solomon comes to that conclusion as well. I mean, Solomon is the, the most glass, half-empty guy in all of Scripture. And listen to how, what he says. Um, he gets done with this rant that we just read to verse 23. And then if we pick up at Ecclesiastes 2, 24... He says this, a man can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. 
This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand over to to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. See, Solomon even, even recognizes in his pessimistic way that this is a good thing. This is a gift from God that man, you know, eats and drinks and he works hard and he finds enjoyment in his work. That's a good thing and it's a gift from God. And the writers of the New Testament talk a lot about uh, our work being for our good and for God's glory. But it's interesting because of the people that the writers in the, uh, in the New Testament are talking to. Paul talks a lot about slaves. Talks a lot to slaves. And what is his, um, uh, his encouragement to slaves? Well, it's the same thing that he would encourage all of us with. For example, here's one of the, one of the scriptures that, that Paul gives us for 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to this. Um, I mean, if this isn't a summary statement, maybe one that you could um, underline in your scripture, I don't know what is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, I love the, the simplicity of this. This is simple, everyday stuff. Eating, drinking, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God in everything we do. That means that our attitude at work should glorify God. That means that the quality of our work should glorify God. That means that the way that we treat our, our boss should glorify God. The way, our, the way you treat your employees should glorify God. That means... That if you're getting paid for eight hours of work, that you don't leave a half an hour early. Why? Because that's dishonest. It's stealing, and that wouldn't glorify God. Oh, and by the way, it says whatever you do, not whatever you get paid to do. I think that's important. Especially if, you know, if you're a housewife, or if you're a stay-at-home mom, or a student, or you're retired. Whatever you do, do it to bring glory to God. So work is, is for God's glory, but it's also for, for our good. Secondly, I would say this. Our decisions about work and finances should be driven by a proper definition of success. A proper definition of success. We must define our target, what it is we are shooting for. And success is a good thing to aim for. I want to be successful. I'm aiming for success. I want to be the best pastor that I can be. I want to be the best husband I can be. I want to be the best father that I can be. Success in and of itself is not a bad thing, but for, for many people, they, they define success wrongly. And so success is not wealth. I want to say that. Success is not wealth. And why can success not be measured as wealth? Well, because you have righteous people who are very wealthy and some of the most evil people that inhabit our planet are also very wealthy, right? It's interesting to me. There's a quote by Donald Trump. He says this. He says, the real treasure of success is how happy you are. I have lots of friends who don't have a lot of money, but they're a lot happier than I am. So therefore, I say that they are probably more successful. So this is Donald Trump saying that, really, I've missed the mark on success because I have a lot of money, but I'm not happy. 
But I bet you if you go talk to Donald, Trump, Donald Trump's friends who don't have the money, what would they say? Success is probably if I had a little more money. I also think it's interesting that in a, in a room like this, and how, mo- how many of us would say, it would be really nice if I had a little more money? I'm in that category. Sure, that would be really nice. But what's also interesting in a room like this is that if you were to, to look around, you would say, well, there's someone in this room that has a little more money than I do. That's true of all of us. But what does that person say? It would be nice if I had a little more money. So Solomon would say it this way. He would say chasing after wealth is like chasing after the wind. You never have enough. You never arrive anywhere. So wealth is not the, the ultimate measure of success. Success is also not a special feeling. For me, this is true of me, that, that I want to have this feeling that, I've, that I've, I've done everything right. I want to have this feeling of, you know, I didn't leave any stone unturned. Um, I couldn't have done anything better. I want to have this feeling of just deep satisfaction that I did everything that I could do, and I did it right. I did it my best. Now, pursuing excellence, all of that, that's not, that's not bad. But for me, it's like a never-ending pursuit because am I ever going to do it, live up to my own standards for myself? Am I ever going to, you know, to do whatever it is perfect without any error? No. It's like chasing after the wind. Success is also not power, and Solomon really harks on this. He, you know, he says, you know, power is such a fleeting thing because as soon as you get power, um, whenever that person dies, guess what? There's somebody right there to take over and to inherit all of the power that that person Achieved. Power is such a fleeting thing, it doesn't last. Success is also not achievement. It's not achievement. For some, this could be fame, it could be a title, it could be a position or a status. This could be measured by your IRA or by the size of your boat. For some, this could mean achieving early retirement or getting to play golf every day. Or maybe it's putting up 300 bushel an acre corn or keeping your house clean every day, whatever that is that you're saying, you know, if I could just achieve this goal, then I'll feel successful. Now, none of those things are bad, are they? None of those things are bad, but if that is what's defining you, then you're missing the mark. Why? Because what does it do you to to make 300 bushel an acre corn and go home to a marriage that's falling apart and kids that hate you? Right? Right? What good, does it be, what good is it to be able to retire at, at 50 and not be able to enjoy it because you've spent the last 40 years at work and you don't have any friends? You can't even look at the person in the mirror in the eye. You know, and even worse, you know, you can't have a conversation with God because there's no relationship there. Success is not achievement. I'd also say this. Success realizes that God is more interested in who I am than what I do. Wow, I would would really actually like to spend more time on this than what I have this morning, but in our culture, we place an extremely high value on what we do, don't we? I mean, how many of you have these conversations when you you get home from church? And you say, did you meet so-and-so? You know, he's the manager at the whatever, he, you know, he's married to, you know, his wife, she's a nurse, 
they have their two kids and he plays football, you know, we measure um, people, we define people by what they do. And what's interesting about that, I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently wrong about knowing what people do and that kind of thing, but where it becomes wrong is when we make a judgment on someone because of what they do. So if we introduce ourselves to someone and we find out that, hi, I'm such and such, and I'm a brain surgeon, there's a difference between that person, uh, you know, our feelings towards that person, our thoughts towards that person, and, and, and a person that, that we say, hello, hi, what do you do? I'm a, a, the burger flipper at the local McDonald's. And so automatically, based just on a title or just on what they do for, for work, we, we place them on some kind of scale. And we judge a person by what they do. Does it say anything about their heart? Can there be a brain surgeon that's the most rotten person on the face of the planet? Sure, there could be. And could there also be you know, a person who flips burgers at McDonald's that's like the Mother Teresa of our day? Of course there could be. See, God sees through all of the, the, these, these kinds of definitions that we like to put on people. And for us, we strive to be, you know, the commander, the general, the CEO, the CFO, the founder, the manager, the leader, whatever it is that's important to us. And so being a private or a burger flipper or a car washer, or here's one, maybe the lowest respected one on our totem pole, a housewife, Right? If you're one of those, you know, then what does that say? Then you're a nobody. And so many people are set on getting a better title than the one that they have, and it's, and it's an endless pursuit, like chasing after the wind. I'd like for you to turn to the, the book of 1 Samuel. There's a really interesting little story here. I'm just going to look at one little snippet from it. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 which is on page 277 in the, the handout Bibles. There's a man named Samuel, and God has rejected the, the king of the day. His name was Saul. And so um, God needs Samuel, who's um, the, uh, a, a prophet of the day. He, he needs him to go and find and anoint the next king. God knows who this is, and he's going to send Samuel to go and anoint the next king. So... In 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel goes to Jesse in Bethlehem and he says, Jesse, hey, bring your boys because Samuel now knows that God has chosen one of these sons. Bring your boys, and let's go to the sacrifice together. And they do. And Jesse parades all of the boys in front of Samuel. And here's what Samuel does in uh, verse 5, or actually verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, Surely the, nor the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So all the boys start parading by and Samuel picks out Eliab and he says, I know it, that's the king right there. Surely that's him. I'm looking at all these guys and he's the one that, he's the one that stands out. He's the kingly guy. But look at verse 7. <clears throat> the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not consider his appearance or his height. For I rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? At the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I think that's such a, such a pointed statement. God's not impressed by your title. He's not impressed whether you're a CEO or a CFO or you know, whether you're the manager or the leader or the founder or whatever your title is. He's not impressed with that. He's, he doesn't look at those things that man looks at. He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. And the question for all of us today in taking account of our own lives is when God looks at my heart, what does he see? I can impress a lot of people with my title and I can impress lots of people with my job, but when God looks at me, what does he see? And that's a much more important question than am I impressing people when they look at me? I wish I could spend more time on that, but we've got to move on. Success places higher value on things that are eternal rather than things that are temporary. You've heard the, the, the joke, right, where, where the guy has um, all this gold, all this money, and uh, he dies, and in his will he wants to be buried with all of his gold. So they do. And he gets to heaven, and uh, St. Peter sees him there carrying all of his gold, wanting to walk into to heaven. And St. Peter asks him, what are you doing bringing pavement? Right? Get it? Streets of gold. How I wish we could get this, you know? That the stuff that we place so much value in here on this earth, the stuff that we work so hard to achieve, the stuff that we spend hours researching online, the stuff that we save up all of our money for, the stuff that we drool over and covet and wish we had for ourselves, the, all of this stuff... It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. It, it's all going to rust. It's going to break. It's going to wear out. Ultimately, it's going to disappoint. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And listen to verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke chapter 12. Jesus told this parable, this story. And he said it this way in verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whomever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. See, the, I, the point of Jesus' parable here 
We see played out in our culture again and again and again. Someone who's working timelessly now, tirelessly, for the purpose of building up their portfolio, the purpose of building bigger barns so that when they retire, they can sit back and they can take it easy. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't save. I'm not saying that we shouldn't prepare and plan for the future. All of those things are, are good things to invest and to, to accumulate wealth even. All of those are good things. But if the purpose is, I'm going to work tirelessly now so that someday I can enjoy the, the fruit of my labor. When I retire, that's when I'm going to get serious about my family. When I retire, that's when I'm going to get serious about my relationship with God. When I retire someday, you know, that's when I'm really going to get, get serious. So, so that person is, is right now tirelessly working towards a day that may or may not come in their lives. The point of the parable was, not that it's bad to build bigger barns or anything, the point of the parable was, don't put all your eggs in the basket of the future and sacrifice the here and now. The truth is that right here and now, you probably have a marriage and a wife that needs you. You probably have kids that this is the most fundamental formational period of their, their, their life and they need you at home. And if you are working tirelessly for a day when you're you know, eventually going to take all this time off and live uh, 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 you know, underneath all of this wealth that you're accumulating now, one, you aren't guaranteed tomorrow for your very life, and two, could it be that you're burning the bridges that later on are going to be the most important relationships in your life? Why? Because you're, you're set on the wrong things. You're, you're set on, on a day that's coming and you're forsaking what, what's here and now. You're not guaranteed to later. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. But you are guaranteed right now. And I feel like we could talk about that some more too, but we have to move on. Often, the first thermometer for our heart is our finances. It's just true. Often the first thermometer for our heart is our finances. This was shown in, in the, the, the story uh, in Scripture of the rich young ruler. And there's this, uh, this ruler that comes to Jesus and he, and, he, and he says in Matthew 19, he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus answers that question. He says, you know, what you ask me is good. There's, there's only one that's good. If you want to enter life, keep, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And this man says, well, all of these I have kept. Kept all of these. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, well, if you want to be perfect, go and Go and sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then you can come follow me. And this is key. When the young man heard this, he went away and he said, and he was sad because he had great wealth. Now, what's the point of, of this? You know, what was Jesus really doing? Well, there, here's this man who, who's coming and he's saying, he's saying, I've kept all of the commandments. I've already done all that. What is there more for me to do spiritually in my life? What more could I do? And I think Jesus was identifying his, his heart and he was taking a thermometer and he was saying, 
If you really want to test the temperature of your life, it's not, it's not by what you've, you have done, your self-righteousness. Here you go. I'm going to identify an area of your life. This is a touchy area. Why, why not do this? Why not go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor? And what does it say the man did? He walked away sad. You know, for him, the thermometer of his heart, the, the gauge by which Jesus was, was saying for him, you know what, I, I want to really show you your heart towards me, it was his finances. And here's the deal. The Bible is an excellent resource when it comes to money. When it comes to biblical principles of, of how to deal with money. It talks a lot about money. And what I've, what I've noticed and what, what I see in statistically and just my observations is this can be one of the biggest hindrances in people's lives. It can be a cause of conflict in marriage. It can be a cause of stress. I mean, a, a simple question to ask yourself would be, you know, how would my life be different if money wasn't an issue? And for most people, they would, they would say, you know what, there is a big difference between those things. Money really does hinder me in some way or another. And I, I think the Bible is so practical and gives us such help that we need, to, we need to learn about that. And so what I would say is this. If, if money is an issue in your life, you know, if you have some struggle in this area of finance, uh, I'd encourage you to, to, to do this, to, to go to Financial Peace University. Now, what this is, is a course that's going to be offered at EWC. Um, and I'll tell you some details here in just a moment. But it's a course in understanding and applying biblical principles of finance in your life. Now, I want to show you a video um, uh, that, that kind of gives an overview of what Financial Peace University is. And we think this is, could be so helpful in, uh, in the practical way that we're going to take a few minutes to watch this video. So, if you would, please. Welcome to Financial Peace University. Financial peace. These are words that just don't go together in our culture anymore. Too many people are struggling with this subject of money. Too many people are struggling with this subject of money in their relationships, in their marriages. Too many people are struggling with this subject of money in their area of their careers. We just don't know what to do with this whole thing called money. Well, I found out something about money. Money's actually fun, if you got some. <laughs> but boy, I tell you what, it does weave its way into the tapestry of our lives, and it does mess with us on just about every possible level. So we're glad you're here. I can promise you this, we are going to have some fun as we talk about money. We're going to laugh, we're going to cry, I'm going to talk to you about relationships, I'm going to talk to you about your spiritual walk, your emotions, and we're going to change the way we handle our lives around this subject of money as we go through this class together. It's absolutely imperative that you really stay plugged in. Now, some of you have, uh, you, you just didn't want to be here. You're drug here against your will. I know that because I was out in the parking lot and I saw several sets of heel prints on the way in. <laughs> Some of you, Dave Ramsey, the name has become a cuss word in your house. Some of you, one lady, I was doing a book signing a while back and she said, you know, I don't even know you and I don't like you. <laughs> and some of you, that's you. I understand. 
I get that. We are going to have some fun, and if that's you, I'm probably actually more on your team than on the team of that nerd that brought you. I'm a guy that's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I grew up not rich. How many of you grew up not rich? When I got out of college and graduated from college, my wife and I got married. We were so broke we couldn't pay attention. We didn't know what we were going to do. When we graduated from college, our net worth was a half a box of no-dos. You know what I'm saying. And, and we got married and started off our lives broke. How many of you, when you started off, you started off basically broke? You know what I'm talking about. We ain't got money, honey, but we got love. And it's a good thing, too, because we ain't got no money. Well, that's how we started out. And I started buying and selling real estate, and I got rich. At least by a kid from Antioch, Tennessee standards. I ended up with about $4 million worth of real estate starting from nothing by the time I was 26 years old. However, I had done some dumb things. Nothing immoral, nothing illegal or anything like that. I didn't steal from anybody. I didn't lie, from, lie to anybody. I was just stupid. I borrowed too much money. And our largest bank got sold to another bank. And then word got out on the street that Dave was in trouble. And another bank got sold to another bank. And they started calling our note. And we spent the next two and a half years of our life losing everything we owned. We were sued. We were foreclosed on. And finally, with a brand new baby, a toddler, and a marriage hanging on by a thread, we were bankrupt. I was a 28-year-old, young dad, young husband, scared out of my mind. I didn't know what to do. I remember standing with that shower so hot in my face that I could just barely stand there and I would just stand there and cry because I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any steps. No one talked about this stuff much. And then I started slowly discovering that the Bible had some things to say about money. I started reading a man named Larry Burkett. And then I started reading another guy named Ron Blue. Met another man named Howard Dayton. And these men had been teaching biblical finance throughout North America. And I started learning from them and started applying those principles in our lives. Because we were so beat up, we didn't know what to do. And see, I had all these letters and licenses after my name that says I'm supposed to know something about money. I've got a finance degree. And there I sat broke. Apparently, something was wrong with my plan. And I needed a new one. You see, I do everything backwards. Most people meet God at the bottom. I met Him on the way up. I just got to know Him on the way down. What we're talking about here is, is that we found the truth. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Everybody stand up for a second. Here's what I want you to do. I want first, understand that I can see all of you and I will mess with you if you don't play my games. What I want you to do is I want everyone in here to close your eyes. Thank you. Okay, now, here's what I want you to do. With your eyes closed, even if you don't know the answer, it's okay to be wrong. It's just not okay to not play. You've got to play. So even if you don't know the answer, you've got to guess. I want you to point north. Keep your eyes closed and point north. Now, stick with your plan. Stick with your, your, your feeling. Open your eyes and look around. Someone is lost. According to my compass, north is right through here. Now, I won't point him out, but one guy was pointing this way and he did a little cheerleading move. Everybody have a seat. 
The point is, is that this is the truth. That is north. That is the truth. And we live in a culture today where people think they can make up their own truth. You can't make up your own truth. There's a truth that's independent of you. And your feelings are often not true. Some of you went with your best feeling. You had no idea and you launched off going south. If you want to go to Canada, this is the direction. You can get there this way, but it's the long way around. (laughs) This is the truth. This is the truth. And to the extent that you are not lined up with your compass, you're what's known as lost. And you're going to bring pain to your life, and you're going to bring shortage to your life, and you're going to bring problems to your life. I know. I've lived that. So, how you feel really doesn't matter. And we have to remember that it's about choices. Personal finance is about 80% behavior. It's only about 20% head knowledge. That's why God chooses to work through money to change and transform us. For some of you, He's going to use this issue of money to heal your marriage. For some of you, He's going to use this issue of money to put discipline in your life in a place and in a way that you never dreamed you would see it. You're going to make different choices after having gone through this. It absolutely works. Financial Peace University began about 20 years ago. I started it with a bad suit and an overhead projector. The typical family going through Financial Peace University pays off $5,300 in debt and saves $2,700. That's an $8,000 change in position is the typical person or the typical family going through this. And and so if you pay a little bit for this course and you go through it and you get $8,000 change, I call that a bargain. I call that a good buy. This whole course is taught by me on video. And afterwards is when the most important thing happens, and that's the small group discussion. Go to the small group discussion. Bring your budget each time and be accountable to the lesson. Make sure you're learning the lesson. Unpack this with other people. It feels a little weird at first, but go in there. The accountability to change your behavior is the key. That's the big deal, and you're definitely going to want to do that. Again, there is no doubt that this process called Financial Peace University works. The only question is whether you're going to be involved. And so if you haven't signed up yet, now is the time. So, he said, you know, Financial Peace University, this thing really works. And it's not because Financial Peace University works, it's because biblical principles work. Okay? And what we're encouraging you to do is, um, if this is an area of your life that you need some, some help in, um, that's, that's good. We all need help in this area. But what I would encourage you to do is to actually stay, take a step in doing something about it. Um, but here's, here's the deal. The deadline to register is tomorrow. Now, th- that means that you need to deal with this today. You need to, to say, uh, you know, after church, whatever, bring it up, discuss it over, and say, you know what, um, yes, we think this would, would be a good thing. It's Monday nights from 6 to 8 at Eastern Wyoming College starting September 30th for nine weeks. And the, the cost is $115. That's per individual or per couple. 
So if you go as a couple, it doesn't, you don't have to pay the fee twice. It's just $115. And we, as a church, we believe in this, and we want to help you um, in making this possible. And so we are um, providing child care at Eastern Wyoming College for anyone who would want to participate in this course. And so uh, don't let child care be an issue for you. There's also some, uh, lim- albeit limited, there's some scholarship money. In fact, after church today, I had a, a man came up and he told me the story of how his son went through P- Financial Peace University and he, uh, you know, kind of equated that to rescuing their marriage. They, they were in a mess and they got some things straightened out. They got some priorities set in their life and got on, on a right track. And he believes in it so much that he wrote me a check and said, you know, here's to add to your scholarship fund so that nobody can have an excuse not to go. We want you to be able to pay something, to have some skin in the game, as it were, but don't let money be the, the reason that you wouldn't attend this. I think it's excellent stuff, um, learning about biblical priorities in finance. Okay, let's wrap this thing up. Success is only achieved inside boundaries of biblical priorities. This is so important. The Bible outlines very clearly priorities for our life. And God is always number one. And you can just make that statement, whatever it is. You want to talk about your personal life, you want to talk about your financial life, you want to talk about the church, whatever it is, your marriage, your, your parenting, God is always first. It's just the way that it is. And the biblical priorities then would say, well, what's next? If God's first, what's, what's next? Well, I think we could say very clearly that next is your, your family relationship, your relationship with your wife, your relationship with your kids. And where does work fall in that? Well, work is at least number three on the list, and maybe even further down. And it, success uh, is ruined. You throw the whole thing out if you get those priorities mixed up. In fact, if you, have, um, if you place work or success above God, what happens? The whole thing falls apart. Jesus said it this way. The first part of Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. He said, What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? I mean, that's a description of someone who is placing success, gaining the whole world, okay? Yet forfeiting their soul. They're placing all of that above God. That's not a good picture. Success falls apart. What happens if you take and you, okay, maybe you get God first, but you place um, your job, your career, your, your, your pursuit of success over your family? What happens? Well, I think the, the verse would, would read this way. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his marriage? To forfeit his relationship with his kids, to forfeit his happiness. So you see what I'm saying? The only way that true success can be achieved is within the the boundaries of biblical priorities. God comes first, then your family, and then your job is somewhere down the list with the rest of it. And finally is this. In the end, the reality is that everything, including success, is God-given. In the end, everything including success, is God-given. I'll have you turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes as we close here. Because there's a really clarifying summary statement that, that Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. 
Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Then I realized that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of, of life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a, say it with me, gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because of why, and isn't this what we're really shooting for? Because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Not what we want. You know, to get to the end of our life and the things that, that we spent our life doing, our life's work mattered. You know, it meant something. You know, when the when the last piece of sand of our life falls, where do we want to be? I think for all of us today, you know, this is just another opportunity to evaluate and to, to, to aim our, ourselves again and to say, you know what, Lord, when when the end comes, when when it is that I Whenever that, that glorious day is, Lord, when you have it appointed that I would take my last breath, you know, I want what I'm doing now to have mattered. I want everything that I'm doing now to be on purpose so that when I get to the end, I'm not going to have any regrets. And it's an understanding that all of that is God's timing. It's God's plan. He gives us success. He gives us life. And in Him we find meaning and purpose and value. So I'd encourage you, you know, to not, not just stop here, but to actually put down some, some things on paper to say, you know, what is the goal of my, my life's work? What is it that I'm aiming for? And I think that as, as we have the, the last few weeks, the answer is probably going to be one of three answers. It's either going to be you're on target continue in the direction that you're headed or it might be you're on target but I need you to make a few corrections or it might be you're headed in the wrong direction you need to change course whatever it is that God points out let's have the faith to follow in I'd also continue to to implore you uh, Financial Peace University if that's something that, that, that you know you're sitting here don't let it slip away say today we're going to decide we're going to talk about this and make some plans to attend it I think it could be a really beneficial thing in many of our lives. So the worship team is going to come forward as we close the service. The yesters are going to come forward and take our morning offering. You need to know that we don't talk about finances and that uh, here this morning because the church is broke. That's not why we're talking about this. This is a time for those that have identified that the Lord has been good to them, gracious to be obedient to what he's called them to do, and that is to, to give back a portion that he blesses us with so that we can be a blessing to other people. And As the plate goes by, you can drop those Connect cards in. I invite you to stand to your feet as we close in this final song, acknowledging that, that God truly is the one who reigns, and it's him that we live for, that we worship. <laughs>